Welcome to a new episode of EU Watchdog Radio. My name is Hans van Scharen, Media Officer at Corporate Europe Observatory, also known as CEO. We published this podcast on the 9th of May for a reason. In a way, this is the first of several episodes to celebrate the 25th anniversary of CEO. But, as you can imagine, these are not really times for celebrations and festivities. The devastating ongoing war in Ukraine, accelerating climate change, biodiversity collapse and growing divide between haves and have-nots are some of the truly worrying challenges we face today. But as the European powers that be are today celebrating the 9th of May, we thought we also could use our 25th anniversary to look back. The 9th of May is Europe Day, or more precise, Schumann Day a.k.a. the day that Schumann Declaration was presented by the French Foreign Minister Robert Schumann in 1950. It proposed the creation of the European Coal and Steel Community, whose members would pool coal and steel productions. It was in a way the birth of the European Union as we know it. But today we will talk about another year, 1972. That is a year that was at least as significant because it was the year in which the Club of Rome published its famous report Limits to Growth. This report sent shockwaves throughout the world and remains highly relevant today. In this episode we will discuss with Geert Bulens, the Belgian historian, scholar and writer connected to the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. Bulens recently published a new and fascinating book, of which the title, translated from Dutch, reads What we already knew back then, the forgotten history of 1972. Because that year, there was a unique and surprising consensus among business leaders, academics and politicians alike, on the fact that eternal economical growth and population growth would make the Earth ecosystems crash at some point. But unfortunately, this consensus did not last very long. We will hear from Bulens why and what was, for example, the role played by the US-based lobby group The Business Roundtable, also created in the same year, 1972, as well as the influence of the neoliberal revolution by economist Milton Friedman and the likes. It is clear that humanity wasted an historic momentum to take scientific predictions serious. And it is sad as well to say that now, 50 years later, we are again in such an historic momentum, given the biodiversity crisis and the climate urgency. And again, we seem to be wasting the momentum. As echoed recently, by the UN Secretary-General Guterres a few weeks ago when the latest IPCC report was published. In this episode, we will also talk to CEO researcher and co-founder Olivier Houdeman 
about the creation of the European Roundtable of Industrialists in 1981 and the role it played and still very actively plays to keep corporate private interests at the core of European Union policies, even in time of climate urgency. But now first, Geert Bullens about that fascinating year 1972. Welcome, Geert Bullens. Um, first of all, why did you decide to write this book on uh, the forgotten green history of 1972? Yeah, well, th thank you, uh, Hans. It's great to be here. I think we, we need more historical knowledge about this crucial topic of climate and environmental crisis. Um, if you look at, let's say, the, the Greta Thunberg uh, generation, whom I admire uh, very much, um, that generation is not the first to talk about ecological disasters and, and threatened ecosystems, but it often feels as if they are the first generation. It feels like that to them, but also to, to many other people, including politicians and journalists, I've noticed. Most people know something about a civil rights struggle. They know something about the second feminist wave or, or women's liberation movement. But when it comes to climate change and more broadly, the systemic aspects of our current environmental crisis, it's just striking um, the lack of knowledge um, in our society. And I think we uh, can learn from it. Um, and so that's why I decided to write a book about 1972 as, 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 a, as a symbol of a moment in our history uh, not that long ago, um, where most of the topics we're discussing today um, were already on the agenda. Right. And but why the year 1972? By the way, um, and congratulations with your book. I'm still reading it um, and it's excellent. It's super nice to read. I do hope there will be an English translation. But um, the, night, the year 1972, um, this obviously is linked to the publication of the uh, Limits to Growth uh, report um, of the Club of Rome. Um, can, can you, for, for those listeners that don't know this report or the Club of Rome, can you just briefly sketch what is the importance of this, this event in 1972? Sure. So, broadly speaking, ecological awareness was not new in 1972. Biologists, ecologists, artists, hippies, the 1960s counterculture, um, they had been warning for some time, also experimenting with uh, renewable energy, for instance. But the Club of Rome was a different kettle of fish. These were people from the establishments, right? These, these people came from Fiat, Olivetti, Organization for the Economic Cooperation and Development. Their research was sponsored by the uh, Volkswagen Stiftung. Uh, the research itself was carried out by MIT in the United States, so one of the centers of the military-industrial complex. They were using computers and computer modeling. So this was the establishment speaking which, of course, brings it into uh, the media sphere and into society on a totally different level. Right. And basically, I mean, the title says it, Limits to Growth. It was the first, let's say, really calculated estimation that if we continue um, the unlimited growth model, then we will crash into a wall. Um, in a nutshell, that was a bit yeah. what they said, right? Yes, and they uh, they had uh, a few um, parameters um, combining ideas of economic growth, population growth, uh, land use, uh, pollution, um, food production, um, and in their estimation, 
somewhere in the 21st century, indeed, um, we would crash into a wall because that type of growth was would prove not uh, sustainable. That's That was basically the idea. Now, you just said it. This was establishment speaking. It was um, basically establishment, um, big capital, capitalism, joining with a counterculture that you mentioned earlier, the hippies, the, the environmentalists, uh, people like Rachel Carson of uh, the book uh, Silent Spring, uh, 1962. Um, this is quite amazing to have these two cultures, these two opposing poles in society basically to join and basically spread the same message. I mean, that is a very, very peculiar moment in our history. And if you look back at it today, it's pro 1972 was probably the last year where this type of coalition was was possible, because with the oil crisis in 1973, everything changed, and the uh, the uh, the era of um, utopianism was crushed by neoliberalism. Um, and uh, but at, in the in the late 60s and the early uh, 70s, because the early 70s I think are still very much part of what we call the 60s and the early 70s, uh, also because they they were visible types of pollution uh, that people could no longer deny. And the idea was, well, okay, if we change laws, we need environmental protection agencies and laws to to uh, clean up the mess that capitalism but it was also an, an issue in in socialist countries it was not only in the capitalist uh, west uh, we need to clean up uh, the mess that we that we made and but the mess at the time compared to today's mess uh, was of course um not as deep and not as uh, massive as as it is today i mean you can clean up a river Right, it's different to clean up the atmosphere, uh, the way we are now uh, using it with uh, um, fossil fuels. Of course, people at the time were aware of climate change. Um, so, in in the report as well, there was one page about uh, CO two and about emission impacts, um, but it was a minor issue. Now, today, of course, it's the central issue. At the time, uh, that, that was different. And um, I think in 1972, most people had the idea that some changes were not only necessary, but doable. Right. And but as you mentioned, they, they were also doable because cleaning up a river is doable. We have proven that. Improving the air quality in the city is doable. We have proven that and we are still doing that so. But obviously, um, as you already uh, between the lines indicated, getting CO2 out of the atmosphere is another ball game. Yes. And basically, one of the not so happy messages from your book, as far as I got it, is that we lost a momentum um, in 1972. If we would have acted and this momentum of different parts of society joining and basically being aware of the same urgency, um, that is a very powerful thing. Um, so there were, if I understand you well, there were positive effects of this momentum, the Club of Rome report, uh, the creation of environmental protection, protection agencies in the US, the environmental legislation, even a president like Nixon did positive things in that respect. Indeed. Um, but but on the on on the long term, do you agree with the statement that we did lose that momentum? 
<laughs> yeah, we we lost the momentum, but I think the the systemic change that uh, that we need takes and asks so much of society at large uh, that maybe it was a bit too much to ask. I mean, if you if you look at later specific problems like acid rain or CFKs, those were more or less solved by the international community because it implied relatively minor changes in production and um, let's say our daily our daily business. What we are talking about today, of course, is on a huge scale. Um, and I think, well, why did we lose that momentum? The coalition didn't last. It didn't survive the uh, the oil crisis. It didn't survive the neoliberal onslaught of the 1970s. Um, but also, if you look at business interests, special interests, right? The fossil fuel industry has been deceiving the the general public for decades, right? Uh, so many of the most powerful companies on earth have been actively working against systemic change. And of course, they have a huge influence on our political system, even more so in the United States, where they can actually buy the support like we now witness every single day. If you look at what Joe mentioned does and does not, he's just, uh, he's a hostage of the fossil fuel industry, right? The member of uh, Congress in the US, you mean, that is blocking yes. uh, climate change policies. Block, block the, uh, Biden's uh, climate change policies. And so on, on that level, the the responsibility of, of, of big money um, and, and, and how big money is um, intertwined with big politics, that is, of course, one of the, one of the major stories and one of the main reasons why um, the change that we so desperately need uh, still um, hasn't been realized. But of course, individual citizens as voters, but also as consumers um, and as activists, are also part of the story. Right. right? Um, in 1972, if you think about, okay, let's clean our, our local river, people were saying, yeah, sure. <laughs> but if you say, okay, now, um, okay, you, you, you got a car and in your family, maybe you got a second car, um, but you need to uh, go back to one car because that second car is too much pollution. Just as an example, right? Mm -hmm. That is not something that most uh citizens would be willing to do right so the idea of of limits to growth sure but not my growth right <laughs> um and and the combination of let's say uh financial interests fossil fuel industry politics neoliberalism if you look at let's say consumption patterns from the 1990s onwards they have gone in the totally opposite direction of what is needed right if you look at a at the at the monstrous invention like the SUV, 
right? Nobody needs a yet an SUV, but the um, the emissions of SUVs are are just horrendous, right? Um, and in the nineteen in the early nineteen seventies. European Commissioner and Vice President of the European Commission, Siko Manshold, his reaction to the Limits to Growth report was, okay, we should limit production to those products that we really need. And as a commission, we should be able to say, okay, this company gets these resources, that company gets those resources, but they won't get all the resources they're asking for because they would use them for products that we don't need, right? And so that mind frame that Mansholt had 50 years ago is, of course, totally absent from political discourse these days, right? Um, there is no limit to production. There is no limit to consumption. Well, maybe hmm. the Ukrainian crisis now that could and maybe should kickstart a discussion about what are we willing to do and how can we use this crisis to both really hurt Putin, but also change our own ways. But that indeed would imply a, a discourse of uh, sacrifice, I think, and, and, and of individual, but also collective uh, behavior change right. that so not that has not been part of our political discourse for decades. Well, I think also a lot of people were expecting this or hoping for this um, uh, systemic and personal change uh, uh, due to the pandemic. But uh, obviously, I'm I'm afraid I don't want to sound pessimistic, but mm. that didn't really happen. And no. I know now in Italy, for example, the Italian government called for Operation Thermostat to put their uh, their cooling systems a bit lower to reduce energy consumption. But I'm afraid, um, also on the basis of what you say uh, historically, once this crisis is over, we will then go back to business as usual. And that is, I'm afraid, the uh, condition politique, condition humaine that we're talking about. I'm, I just wanted to go briefly back into to, to 1972 because there is this irony of history, which I didn't know and I read in your book, is that this... You already mentioned it um, between the lines, but the, the role of big business um, in, in, in basically losing this momentum of 1972. And that was in this very same year in the United States, the business round table was created. And then a few years later, really with the Milton Friedman uh, School of Economics, Chicago School of Economics, the, 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 the sort of the start of the neoliberal revolution. But how important was this business round table? Can you, can you maybe elaborate a little bit? I think it was very important because you had these leaders of very central firms going against basically their colleagues who were mainly European colleagues in the Club of Rome. Um, and that business roundtable was all about deregulation. It was about delimiting. So it was the opposite message. And that message, of course, that sounded wonderful. <laughs> It sounded specifically wonderful when it was articulated by um, Hollywood actor Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Right? Uh, it's morning in America, right? I mean, Jimmy Carter had said, "Okay, it's gonna it's gonna become difficult. Uh, we're gonna need to take a step back. The oil crisis has gone is is having an impact on our daily lives." And then 
Reagan said, well, no, the sky is the limit, right? And so on, on that level, the, the combination of um, deregulation and the political articulation of those ideas and implementation up until the Trump administration, because the Trump administration on this level was all about deregulation, about crushing the Environmental Protection Agency and so forth. So yeah. on, on that level, the, the impact of the, of the lobby, of the business roundtable lobby that was started in 1972, I think is huge. And then indeed in the second part of this podcast, we will talk about the follow-up, the European follow-up, the creation a decade later of the European Roundtable of Industrialists in 1981, which was basically had the same effect on the, on the European Union level. Um, but I'm trying to, to get my mind across here. So you describe how in 1972, the Club of Rome era, um, the momentum of big capital, um, business people meeting the environmental movement, just to, to call it that way, uh, there was a page about climate change in in, the, in that report you, you just described. I mean, how do you, I'm trying to get my mind across how this works psychologically. Um, you have these captains of industry, it's sponsored by the Volkswagen Stiftung. Um, how did that go? I mean, how did you go from that very clear and maybe not so joyful narrative in a capitalist society, in a capitalist culture, being there's limits, but how do you then evolve from, no, actually, we're going to do the opposite? What, what I don't know if my question is clear, but yeah, well, captains of industry, in what happened in their minds? Well, I think the, the, the Club of Rome, of course, might have been a powerful institution on the level of, let's say, the individuals coming from those important firms. By no means were they the mainstream of capitalism. Mm -hmm. If you look at the biographies of the people who were involved in, in the Club of Rome, they had something particular or peculiar. The Italian leader had spent, he had been part of the Italian resistance during the uh, Second World War. He had spent decades in Latin America, was very much concerned with in international development. If you compare his biography to any biography of an American CEO of a fossil fuel company, that's totally different, right? He was not in it for the money. <laughs> and he was in it for humanity, right? I mean, it sounds, <laughs> I was going to say it sounds silly, but that I'm, I'm going to say it sounds silly in itself, of course, is a symptom of our age, right? Because of course we should be in it for humanity. <laughs> Why else? Right, but had, that has been the effect of, of decades of um, of neoliberal brainwashing. I'm afraid, uh, where the idea of doing something for humanity, of not doing something for your um, uh, for the people who own your company, shareholders. Uh, um, and, and of course, that was the basic idea that that uh, Milton Friedman in the same era. Um, he published it in, in the New York Times, right? That there's only one responsibility, and that is a responsibility towards your shareholders. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, makes very clear how this is indeed a power struggle. Because the illustrations on the New York Times newspaper page where Friedman's words were printed, these were photographs of 
civil society leaders of people working for women's liberation, um, all those late 60s, early 70s movement, movements that were all about uh, changing capitalism for the better, right? Uh, and they they seem to have the times with them, right? If Dylan was singing the times they are changing, it was also about that type of change, right? It seemed as if they had the time with them. And Friedman was consciously trying to change, let's say, the wind of history, right? The direction of history, away from uh, this type of, of humanistic uh, approach um, to a very calculated type of what would turn out to be a neoliberal economy. Given what he achieved, um, and given that we are still having this neoliberal uh, thinking almost in our DNA, as the Belgian uh, uh, um, thinker and writer Paul Verhagen says, um, you know, Milton Friedman must be one of the most influential people then of, of our of, of, of our century, almost, I would say, of past the past century. I mean, it's well, it, enormous. It would, certainly, it would certainly seem so, yeah. Mm. Um, of course, the, the, the discussion, the economic discussion about 1970s economy, about stagflation, about the impacts of the oil crisis, that's a discussion that is still going on, right? I mean, it's utterly not my field. I cannot really say something um, about it on, on a, let's say, a sustained intellectual level. It's it's not my field. Um, but I think there there's other reasons why Friedman was successful, right? If, if, if you look at the, the, the crisis, for instance, in, in uh, the United Kingdom in the mid-70s, uh, that crisis was so deep that solutions like Margaret Thatcher would suggest and would impose, became plausible. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's not only Milton Friedman having these ludicrous ideas. No, he had those ideas and they became successful in a specific economic um, constellation in the 1970s, um, that was, yeah, that was a very intricate uh, situation on, on the level of geopolitics, uh, energy politics, um, uh, inflation, stagflation, and so forth. So on, the, on that level, I, I think it's, uh, well, not for me to have a final uh, say here, but I just want to nuance the, the idea. Of course, I think Friedman was very important, um, but it was not only Friedman. It was a context that made him possible. And it made that neoliberal um, uh, revolution possible. It was not only because these people had these ideas and because they worked towards the realization of those ideas via the business roundtable. No, let's also say, well, they had the, the circumstances worked with them to... Right. Um, it's it's what is being called sometimes the perfect storm. Um, yeah. In a and, way, you could say the, 90s, the mid-1970s were a perfect storm for neoliberalism, yes. Yeah. And um, to, to come to an end, um, uh, Mr. Bullens, so, um, you know, in a way we lost, we can agree that we lost uh, an important historic momentum in 1972. If um, we would have acted collectively and individually, the world would be in a completely different shape now, 50 years later. But 
as we saw with the publication of the um, latest IPCC report and the words of somebody like UN Secretary General Guterres, who was really very undiplomatic. He, he was basically saying that um, countries that are uh, sponsoring or funding um, the exploration of fossil fuels nowadays are the real uh, radicals, not the climate change activists. And also he talked about vested interests, meaning lobbies, blocking um, a, a meaningful climate action. So again, we are in a sort of momentum now, 50 years later than the, 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 the period that you wrote about in your, in your latest book. Um, or how does that make you feel, being an historian and, and a researcher and writer, and 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 being, you know, reading a lot about these these issues and looking at the time that we live now? How 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 do you how do you consider these 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 this momentum? Well, of course, it's it's very difficult to remain optimistic these days because the the crisis is so systemic. And if if you read all those, uh, I mean, the IPCC report, but also the separate reports about ecosystems, about biodiversity, all these um, um, global challenges, you could uh, call them, um, it's it's very difficult to um, to remain hopeful. Um, and of course, I, I couldn't agree more with what uh, Guterres uh, said. I mean, that's I think that it, it's it's the reality, and and we should say it time and again uh, that this indeed is the reality, and that those vested interests are not only the radicals, but in in many respects, their behavior is 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 criminal, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, and I, and I think. Um, the, the the discussions we're having these days about ecocide, um, I think, uh, can really help us in, in in reframing the debate. Indeed, in in in, in terms that could really um, make clear also to the general audience that okay, it's no conspiracy, but these vested interests are working against our general interest yep. and they are guilty of that right and the implications of that guilt should be acknowledged and on that level i think the way we are discussing these issues today is different from five years ago it's utterly different from 10 years ago and and on that level i do see some progress in our let's say general discourse uh, not enough and lots and lots of things need to happen um, but I think that we we are making some headway here, uh, and and on that level, I think uh, we also again as, as as citizens, activists, and consumers um, should voice our opinion and 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 should uh, support politicians who are in very difficult circumstances trying to change the way we have been using energy, uh, using resources. Um, because I mean, it's 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 e easy, I think, to to just blame the politicians. Uh, we also have the politicians that we voted in, in into office, um, and um, we all know which parties are willing to change things and which parties are not. And on on that level, I think um, if we want to have cheap food, cheap holidays, and save our planet, we should realize that that is just not possible, right? I mean, something's got to give. And 
it's gonna be us, right? We need to give. We need to give back to the planet that we've been um, ruining for decades now. Um, and is that a, an, uh, a popular opinion? It's probably not a popular opinion, but I'm afraid it's um, it's crucial. Yeah, I would like to end here on this relatively positive note uh, because it might be some climate scientists and observers say that it might be more popular, this opinion, than we think or that politicians think. That is maybe... Well, that is is possible. Um, But again, there's a crucial difference between a popular opinion and a change of behavior on the level of consumption that uh, that is needed. And again, I think the only solution to these problems is a systemic solution, right? It's never the individual consumer that can change the mess we're in. But millions of European consumers who start eating less meat, who try to electrify their transport, their cooking, that can really change uh, a, a dynamic. Uh, and on that level, I think individual uh, citizens uh, have also a responsibility. Uh, but of course, the biggest uh, solution to this gigantic problem is a systemic one, is, is, is where um, politicians, people who really have the power, put an end to the behavior of special interests, fossil fuel companies, uh, we all know them, uh, who are knowingly and willingly destroying our plans. All right. This is one of the reasons why uh, we and other civil society organizations in Brussels, by the way, have created two years ago the Fossil Free Politics campaign. Uh, I invite everyone to check out on the internet. There's a specialized website dedicated to this. Um, it's an uphill battle, but it, it completely coincides with what you what you are saying. Thank you so much, Geert uh, Bulens, for this talk, and good Thank luck with the book. I do hope there will come, uh, there will be a translation anytime soon. Thank you so much. And now we'll hear from CEO researcher and co-founder Olivier Houdeman. We'll discuss why, in a way, the very creation of Corporate Europe Observatory 25 years ago is linked to the existence of big corporate lobby organizations like the European Roundtable of Industrialists, or ERT. These corporate lobbies stirred the current European Union. Welcome, Olivier. Um, We are talking about the history of CEO, which is in a way connected um, to the history of a very influential lobby group of European business leaders called the European Roundtable of Industrialists. Can you explain very briefly why in a way, CEO was created 25 years ago and how that is connected to, to, to the ERT. Yeah, well, uh, when CEO started uh, back in 96-97, um, basically we were uh, a group of activist friends who uh, decided to take a deeper look at the role of, of big business in uh, creating uh, the, the EU project and the, the, the model of European unification. And we um, we immediately stumbled upon the role of the European Roundtable of Industrialists being a very very strong uh, a driver in in the European unification process and that process taking a neoliberal turn, a neoliberal direction. Um, so so in our f- first uh, publication, Europe Inc. 
uh, we uh, dedicated a, a, a lot of attention to the European Roundtable and how they had done an agenda setting for some of the, the major uh, EU unification projects, how they lobbied successfully uh, using their access to uh, the European Commission and, and governments uh, with, with great impact. The ERT was created in 1981. That is really the start of the neoliberal revolution in Europe. Is, is, that, is, there, a, is there a relation between the two, you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, this was uh, a, a time in which um, the European companies saw what, what big business in the U.S. had done, uh, the way the U.S. Uh, large companies had, had funded think tanks and done this this whole uh, neoliberal counter-revolution, you could say, or at least to, to, to capture the ideological uh, debate and, and steer it in, in, their, in their preferred direction. And they were very inspired by that and, and uh, came up with a similar project for, for Europe and using European unification in a way uh, as, a, as, a, as a tool for reshaping societies across Europe uh, towards a model that would fit them much better so when we talk about they, we talk about the CEOs of companies like Fiat and Philips and the likes? Yes, exactly. Uh, I think also back then there were around 40, 45 CEOs of, of, of the largest European multinational companies indeed. Very shortly, you said that you investig started investigating that and published the first publication, Europe Inc. Um, can you just very briefly summarize what kind of what kind of um, uh, projects did they steer uh, in, in the early days of the European uh, uh, Community and the European Union? Yeah. And what they did very cleverly, I guess, was to uh, convince the, the president of the European Commission at the time, Jacques Delors, uh, to enter a kind of partnership. Uh, in which the support from these large companies could help him achieve, uh, well, getting European unification out of the, the, the crisis it was in at the time. It was uh, on a standstill and getting into onto the fast track again. So um, uh, they would uh, lobby European governments, heads of state, to uh, support um, kind of this this big bang in single market uh, project to uh, remove um, obstacles for trade and investment um, and um, and that would be the driver of uh, of of, uh, of European unification the single market project so they had a, a mutual interest and the law he then thought well uh, if we do it that way eventually there will be a strong political union and it will become a, like a European welfare state with a kind of social democratic uh, character. So that was the gamble that he took uh, for, for, the, for the companies. Uh, um, I think some of those CEOs knew very well back then that if you unleash those market forces, you get a very different dynamic. You get a, a, a stronger role for, for business and society and for, for, for corporate lobby groups, it would be far easier from that moment on because the EU project would become one of creating a, a single market without obstacles. Later came the single currency on, on top of that. Uh, it's not that those projects in themselves are wrong, but they unleashed uh, a dynamic that uh, was really uh, crucial for, for, the, yeah, for the neoliberal revolution in Europe, for this transformation and giving market forces a much stronger role in our societies. 
Yes, it's just counterintuitive because a lot of people, when you ask them about the European Union, let's say citizens that are not professionally involved, they would say, yeah, Europe, that is a, a sort of law and regulation uh, spitting machine. Um, uh, whereas the neoliberal revolution is more about deregulation and about, you know, less government, basically. Yeah. How, how do you connect those two observations? Well, I mean, uh, a lot of that regulation was necessary because if you create a, a single market, you need pan-European rules. That doesn't necessarily mean that those rules are very ambitious, uh, but you, you need uh, rules and standards so so you can sell uh, products without any uh, procedures. The, the, the yeah. famous level, level playing field. Yeah, yes, exactly. So that is why the, the European Commission and the EU became indeed a, a machinery for, for creating uh one set of rules for for all EU member states um and 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 um at the same time national governments took a step back in 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 creating uh new environmental or social legislation saying well this had to come on the EU level because we now have a single market and a single currency it has to happen on that level so that creates the impression that the the EU is is uh, inherently ambitious in social and environmental aspects, which is not necessarily the case. In many cases, it was quite minimal um, regulations that uh, that were developed. Right, and so the 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 gamble of the ERT at the time to create a certain pro business dynamic in the uh, evolution of the European Union translated then in what CEO still calls corporate capture of policymaking. 25 years later, that's still a focus of, of CEO, right? Yeah. Well, corporate capture is the the ex extreme scenario where there is like a almost complete uh, uh, control of the outcome of policies and legislations, which sometimes happens. Luckily, there are also counterforces, of course. So corporate capture is what we're warning against. That's what we have to avoid as progressive uh, movements. That's what we're fighting against. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, the fact that the EU was created around the single market and these market projects, it, it has, uh, as I said, it has unleashed market forces and given them a much stronger role in our societies than was the case uh, 40 years ago. And that was exactly what the ERT was hoping for and, and wanting to see happen. So that is so that, could, that creates some very... Uh, big challenges for us today because of course uh, um, having um, having strong rules for for multinational companies to avoid tax evasion for example that's one of those challenges that we're fighting today there are so many ways that companies can uh, can can distract and and, and avoid uh, the kind of uh, rules that are necessary to protect people and the environment in in this in this setting um, and then uh, a very fundamental problem is that from uh, the neoliberal perspective, the single market is not yet completed. Um, it goes much, much deeper than just removing uh, border controls or toll or, or tariffs on goods. Uh, in, in the view of, of the neoliberal um, uh, ideologists and, and surely these, these uh, corporate lobbyists, the single market is only complete when it covers all areas of society and when there is nothing left that can be seen by businesses as an obstacle. Right. You recently published uh, an analysis of the latest campaign of the ERT, which they launched, I think, in December 21. And it's their contribution to this famous Future of Europe debate that, by the way, this podcast will be published on the 9th of May when this Future of Europe uh, results process will be published, so it's quite uh, topical. Can you can you try to briefly explain what 
the ERT want specifically? You already touched upon it just now, but what do yeah. they what do they do they propose? Yeah. Well, the, uh, the ERT with this campaign claims that there is a, a very big problem with obstacles in the single market. That um, th that the EU should really prioritize getting rid of these these barriers to that that companies are facing uh, when they operate in the in the single market. So that's the image that they are trying to create. It's, it's really a, a, an enormous problem. Um, and then uh, they use this to to argue for uh, well deepening the single market and setting up a whole new system of, of, of decision-making and governance that would uh, make it much easier for business to get rid of uh, laws and regulations or policies that they see as obstacles and would make it much more difficult for governments or for cities to introduce new policies or new rules that they consider necessary, for example, for fighting climate change or for doing something about um, uh, the, the very dire social situation in Europe today. So that is the, 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 the situation that we're, that we're facing now with this ERT campaign. Is that, uh, yeah, their, their message for the, the, uh, the Conference on the Future of Europe is one of uh, EU uh, introduce much tougher rules for the single market, uh, give big business more power to get rid of obstacles. Right, and that means in concrete language that, that companies would have um, uh, um, tools or grounds to sue uh, really governments and local administrations. Or well, they would be able to just uh, go to the European Commission and, and complain. Right. Uh, let's say there's a, a, a government introducing a new rule or a city uh, voting, uh, the, the city council voting for, for something that uh, an ERT member company or large multinationals does not like. The, they, the company can just go to the European Commission and say this is an obstacle in the single market and the Commission would then have far stronger powers to intervene and 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 and, and uh, get rid of that Revoking, policy or rule. Right, yeah, exactly. Right. And we know that the ERT has the open ear of the European Commission because to end with, one of the worries that, uh, that people of CEO are looking into is the fact that as a response to the Ukraine crisis and the, the fact that the European Union wants to get rid of Russian gas and oil imports, is that Ursula von der Leyen apparently invited the ERT as the main body that needs to advise the European Union on. How worrisome is that? Yeah, it's very worrisome that um, that Commission President von der Leyen, she has this uh, instinctual reaction that in this deep crisis, immediately go and talk to the largest multinational companies, in this case, fossil fuel producers uh, and the ERT, and, and, and ask them uh, what should happen um, in terms of energy security. And of course, these are these are companies that are um, uh, they have one interest, and that is to continue uh, digging up and selling fossil fuels. Who have developed a very deep uh, uh, partnership with the Putin regime over the years. Um, I, yeah, I would say it's, it's quite shocking that von der Leyen goes to do, to those uh, people uh, to get advice about what to do in this situation. And to end with, this is the parallel um, between the momentum of 1972 when the Club of Rome said we need to uh, think of degrowth, um, uh, get rid of this idiocy of eternal growth. Um, now, that was a momentum, an international momentum. Now again, we're in a momentum. The IPCC just told us again a few weeks ago, it's now or never. And again, 
without wanting to sound too negative or pessimistic, it seems that the European Union is losing this momentum again. Yeah, it's it's a situation in which it, it, it's really last last chance to to take decisive action to avoid catastrophic climate change. And there's a war going on and there's a clear need and also popular support for getting rid of fossil fuel uh, dependency. And the, 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 there are real opportunities to get rid of fossil fuel use gas, uh, particularly by reducing uh, energy consumption, by isolating homes better, all these, all these steps that can be taken in the short term that would really uh, be the right thing for both this, uh, this, this situation with energy security and for avoiding catastrophic climate change. So the choices mm. that you make right now are of historic importance and it seems von der Leyen is inclined to make the wrong choice. But uh, yeah, we as uh, as people and, and citizen movements in Europe, we need to make sure that uh, the right choices are made. Thank you so much, Olivier. We've come to the end of this podcast. A special thanks goes out to my guests Geert Bulens and Olivier Houdeman for sharing their time and knowledge with us. Also, a big thank you to Mark Baroner and Jan Kallewaert for their technical assistance. If you like this podcast and if you value the work of CEO, then please support us by spreading the word in your networks and communities. And if you can, support us financially to stay independent. Thanks for listening. And despite everything, happy birthday, CEO. Stay tuned, stay safe. <laughs>